Ah, it is good to hear that Christmas jingle again. I think everyone needs that this week more than others as we slowly go back into lockdown in many parts of Europe. <laughs> That's a festive start to the episode, Dominic. It's supposed to be our Christmas episode. Christmas is difficult this year, okay? It is difficult. Don't blame me. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good, yeah. I'm getting into the festive swing of things. Um, did you know you can make your own Baileys? You know, the, the creamy Christmassy drink. I know what Baileys is, but no, I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah, whiskey and cream and coffee and a bit of melted chocolate. It's not very good for you, but it's very delicious. So we had some of that this week. Presumably you're not allowed to call it Baileys because that is a brand name. Uh, yeah, let's call it a creamy Christmassy drink. Mm. <laughs> Sounds nice, doesn't it? How are you? I'm fine. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about this week? I don't know if I want to tell everyone yet what's coming up in the show. Um, mm. All I'm going to say is that it's a very special Christmassy treat. And sometimes when you're waiting for Christmassy treats, it's nice to kind of be left guessing, isn't it? It is. All I'll say is I promise that we're not talking about neo-Nazis this week. Yay. But first, time for a not very Christmassy good week, bad week. Good week, bad week. Who has had a good week, Katie? Uh, it's been a good week for compromise. A couple of weeks ago, Dominic, you were expressing quite a lot of anxiety on this podcast over whether the EU was facing some kind of existential threat. Because if you cast your minds back to a couple of weeks ago, Hungary and Poland were threatening to veto the new European budget and the coronavirus rescue package because of plans to make receiving EU money conditional on respecting basic standards of democracy. Uh, something that doesn't seem that outrageous to most of us who like democracy, but neither Poland nor Hungary has been particularly great at respecting democratic standards lately, so they were not fans of this idea. And you were right to be worried, Dominic, uh, because things really did look quite scary for a while, and it wasn't clear how we were going to get out of this situation. Both sides have been staring at each other, seeing who would crack first. Poland and Hungary were like, there's no way we're agreeing to this. And a lot of other countries were saying, you know, we're not backing down. This is really important. And if you don't like it, Poland and Hungary, uh, we'll just do a budget without you. So things didn't look great. But fast forward to last week and lo and behold, Poland and Hungary have dropped their opposition we have a seven-year budget. Hooray! I'm actually really glad you're here to help explain what happened and how they reached the point that they're at now. Because as you said, I have been like quite obsessed with this story and I've been trying to work out why I'm obsessed with it. And it's partly that there, I felt like there was an ex existential crisis for the EU, but also I realise it's one of the most gripping political stories in the EU that I've come across since we've been making this podcast. And I was trying to work out why. And I think it's because there is like a hint of hope in the story. Mm. There's a hint of hope that maybe things will get better if the EU find a way to make Poland and Hungary behave a bit more democratically and a little bit less authoritarian. So I'm really glad you're here to explain what has happened and whether I actually should be hopeful or not. Um, how did we get to this point? What's happened? Well, the interesting thing about it is that both sides have claimed victory. Uh, the Hungarian and Polish prime ministers are painting themselves as the winners and making it sound like they made the EU back down. But a lot of European leaders are seeing it as a climb down by Hungary and Poland. Like, how is that possible? 
And in the end, it was a classic piece of delicious European fudge, Dominic. Uh, what they've done is they have written a little declaration to go on the side of this new piece of legislation, uh, which basically repeats what the law says again and stresses it will be applied fairly, definitely, uh, which seems kind of obvious, but it is something that Hungary and Poland were worried about. Um, both of them were concerned that they were being singled out for punishment by other countries that don't like them and don't like the way that they've been doing politics. Um, so the EU leaders wrote this quite blah, blah document. But then the other thing, which actually is a kind of concession to Hungary and Poland, is that they are being allowed to challenge this law in the European Court of Justice. Is that actually a compromise? Because surely the European Court of Justice also believe in the rule of law and are going to uphold it. You would think so. Um, everyone does seem quite confident that it will be upheld. The challenge to the law is going to be over like whether uh, the legislation is in line with EU treaties. And everyone thinks, yeah, probably it's going to be fine. But it is a kind of concession in that it's going to lead to a delay. Uh, so it often takes up to a year to get verdicts from that court. And some people have been worried that this could mean the whole linking money to good behaviour thing could get delayed until after the Hungarian elections in 2022. Mm. And that would give Orban more time and more momentum to dismantle Hungarian democracy in the meantime. So it is a bit worrying. But at the time of recording, there is a lot of talk over whether they could get a speeded up court verdict so that it only takes a few months. They did that before on uh, a certain... Article 50 B-word measure, didn't they? On the B-word, yes, indeed. So it is possible. Uh, yeah, so in the end, I guess the worst has been avoided and that we do have a budget for the next seven years. And however much Orban wants to congratulate himself in public, it does look like this new law is eventually going to become a reality. There was this moment where it looked like we could have been facing a total disaster. But for all the big defiant talk from those two governments, both of them were facing a lot of pressure at home to stop dicking around, basically. Uh, Hungary and Poland really need this money. They're among the biggest recipients of EU money, even in normal times. And right now, both of their economies really need access to the coronavirus rescue package. And they were putting themselves in this situation where they were risking not getting any money at all, which could have really hurt normal people and businesses. So I think we can call this a good week for EU compromise at the end of the day. And also specifically to Queen of Europe, Angela Merkel, who apparently plays a really big role in actually getting everyone to come around to this compromise at this marathon summit in Brussels last week. I mean, look, I don't think Merkel has a perfect record, but I do think we're going to miss her ability to find practical solutions to things and make the compromises that need to be made if any kind of progress is going to happen. So in summary... Do you think this is the end of all our worries about democracy in Poland and Hungary? Please say yes. Everything's going to be fine now. It's, it's all good. <laughs> Joking. No, I shouldn't even joke about it. Um, no, this is not the end to all of our worries. It is a bit of a sticking plaster. And it doesn't fundamentally change the fact that there are some democracies in Europe that are in a really sorry state. And that there's a lot of fundamental disagreement over what the European project is about. Is it just about money or is it about values? Um, but to give you one quite grim example of how this compromise does not change things on the ground, there was some quite worrying news from Poland this week. Uh, a state control company just brought up dozens of regional and local newspapers. Not exactly great for media pluralism. And now all the reporters there are seriously worried that they're going to have to write propaganda all day or they'll be fired. Mm. So it's a classic good week with bad things on the horizon, which is festive. Very festive. Great job. Thank you. Who's had a bad week? 
It's been a really bad week for some owners of Polish supermarkets in the Netherlands. There were four explosions over the past week at three different supermarkets across the country. I couldn't believe it when you told me about this because I hadn't seen anything about this in the international press. Like, Why haven't we heard about it? Yeah, well, maybe it's because they happened at night and didn't seem to be attempts at hurting or killing anyone, just damaging property. Mm. Unfortunately, there were no casualties, although a few people did end up in hospital with minor injuries. But the story is really strange and who the perpetrators are and what the motive behind the attack is, is still not clear. It all started in the early hours of Tuesday last week when the fire brigade was called to a major fire in a Polish supermarket in Alsmere after an explosion had hit around 3 a.m. Around an hour later, another explosion was reported at another Polish supermarket, quite far away, about an hour and a half's drive away in Brabant. And the shops both have the same name, which makes you think, oh, they're owned by the same people. It's a personal attack. But these two shops weren't run by the same people. In fact, the owners of the first two shops didn't know each other at all, even though, confusingly, the guys do have the same surname and also the same shop name. Having the same surname is a coincidence, but having the same shop name is not. Their sh- shops are called Biedronka, which means ladybird in Polish, and it's also the name of the biggest supermarket chain in Poland. Now, these Biedronka stores in the Netherlands have nothing to do with the huge Biedronka chain in Poland. These stores are run by individual entrepreneurs in the Netherlands who are using the popular, well-known Polish chain name, complete with ladybird logo, in the hope that it will attract Polish customers with their name and all the Polish products. Mm-hmm. It would be a bit like someone opening a French supermarket in Italy. What's a famous French supermarket? Carrefour. Even if it had no official connection with Carrefour. Gotcha. Anyway, there were two further explosions over the last week after the first night of damage. One was again at one of the original targets and another was a new venue that was actually owned by one of the original owners. And interestingly, all these shops are owned by Iraqi Kurds. Oh, they're not owned by Polish people? No, there's a phenomenon in the Netherlands whereby the majority of Polish shops are owned by young Kurdish men. That's fascinating. Let's make a special episode about that. Let's. And apparently it's not unique to the Netherlands. It's a trend that actually started in the UK, where quite a lot of Polish shops are also owned by Kurdish men. And they think that it's just like someone was successful with a business from the Iraqi Kurdish diaspora and they discovered that Polish shops are quite a good way to make money. You can import Polish products quite cheaply but then give them a good markup because many Polish people living away from home are really keen to get hold of products that make them miss home. It's like that story we had a couple of weeks ago about Ola's grandma where she said she just really needed those Polish pickles. Exactly and she could go to one of these supermarkets to get it. So is is there any theory as to why these supermarkets keep getting attacked then? Well, not really. The fact that two of the shops have the same owner made that owner, actually a pretty talented footballer as well as a supermarket owner, Mm. called Mohamed Mahmoud, suspicious that it was an attack directed at him personally. Um, But he also says he doesn't have any enemies, so he doesn't know who that would be. Also, that wouldn't explain the shop that was attacked that isn't connected to him in any way. Maybe that one was by mistake. Um, That would be quite a fuck up. But Mahmoud thinks it must be something to do with competition in the Polish supermarket 
market. Um, mm. There are currently no suspects, though, so it's a mystery for now. And the week could actually get worse for these shop owners because the real Biedronka chain from Poland responded to these attacks in the media saying... The stores in the Netherlands have nothing to do with our company. And they pointed out stores operating outside of Poland are not allowed to use the Biedronka name. At the same time, we would like to remind you that our trademarks are protected at European Union level and that we take appropriate legal action in case of infringement. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, yeah, this publicity may cause more trouble for the various Biedronka shops in the Netherlands that are piggybacking on the name of the bigger chain in Poland. And before we move off this, um, to tie it in with your good week rule of law story, Katie, apparently some commentators in Poland have been referencing this attack when discussing the rule of law disagreement, saying that the Dutch authorities need to do more to protect Polish people in the Netherlands. Hmm. And of course, Mark Rutte, the Dutch PM, was one of the most hardline parties in the dispute uh, around the rule of law, not wanting to compromise with Hungary or Poland at all. So... He, yeah, he has not been the most popular man in Poland of late. But of course, the attacks have taken place at night and actually seem more likely to be an attack on the Iraqi Kurdish community than the Polish community. Anyway, I thought that was quite an interesting connection between the two stories. Yeah. But hey, some people have had a really bad week. So let's hope the explosions stop now. And shall we move on to something a bit cheery? Let's. Something that is very cheery is the huge number of people who have signed up to support this podcast. Every week we give shout outs to the people who have signed up to give us a few euros or dollars or pounds a week on patreon.com to help us keep running. And we didn't get to do that last week because it wasn't the usual kind of episode. So this week we look really popular and successful because we've got two weeks worth of people to thank. Who are they, Dominic? They are Emma McGarry, Ingrid Magnusson, Oriana Diamond Riano, Claire Reardon. Emily Aldridge, Owen Gower, Micah Kofferman, Erin Rogers, and Kirk. Just Kirk. This might be the last episode of the year, but thanks to all of you lot and the many other people who've signed up to support us over the course of this year, we are delighted to tell you that we are coming back in the new year, bringing you more European weirdness every week. Woohoo! So if you enjoy this podcast, Dominic and I would love it if you could help us keep making it next year. It would put some Christmas joy into our stone cold hearts. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. You're the one with a stone cold heart, not me. <laughs> Gather round, listeners, because it is story time. A couple of weeks ago, Irish Twitter was set alight by perhaps the most delightful story ever posted on that godforsaken website. A story told to us by a Twitter user named Richie Craven about a Christmas miracle in Dublin. Before we start, I wonder whether we should mention that this story takes place in a famous supermarket slash department chain store called Marks and Spencer. And for people who aren't from Ireland uh, or from the UK, they may not know what it is. How would you describe Marks and Spencer's or M&S? Fairly swanky? First food, at least. It sells a lot of, like, underwear, but also swanky food. And everything is made by them. Everything is own brand. Without spoiling it, I will tell you that this story went 
totally viral. I think it's got something like 27,000 retweets. We love the story so much that in this final episode of the year, we wanted to share it with you. Uh, now, Dominic was originally trying to convince me to let him read it because according to him, he's like really good at reading stories. I just read it to my husband and he cried. Well, we'll sadly never know, Dominic, because we really wanted the story to come from Dublin. Um, so we asked Derek O'Shea to read it for us. Derek is a friend of the show and the host of Mother for Claw, a joyous podcast about the Irish language. So here is Richie's story read by Derek in Dublin. The most stressed out I've ever been about Christmas was when I was 16 and I got my first ever job working at Marks and Spencer's in Dundrum. As soon as I started, I kept hearing these myths about the Christmas Eve waste sale, where all the food that wasn't sold on the 24th was marked down 90%. Everyone I worked with kept telling me not to get anything in beforehand because there was so much left that you could get your whole Christmas meal after the shop had shut on the 24th. Dad and I argued for weeks about it going back and forward on whether to get a turkey beforehand. Eventually, we decided we were going to risk it. I was working until it close on Christmas Eve anyway, so my dad said we may as well give it a go. Before I went to work that day, he told me, just at least try and get a turkey, no matter what happens. It was the most stressed I've ever been working in retail, which is saying something. I worked in home and gifts, so every chance I got, I would sneak over to foods and see how busy it was, how many turkeys were left. It was busy, and I was convinced there'd be nothing left. Eventually, closing time rolls around, and all the staff clock out and wait for the sale to start. Now comes my next heart attack. I thought it was just whoever was working Christmas Eve that was able to go, but the entire workforce had trickled in since closing, and I was waiting. I'm 16 years old, and I feel like my family's entire Christmas is riding on me. I swear to myself that, no matter what happens, I'm going to come out of this with at least a turkey. No matter who I have to bludgeon to get it, even if it means not having a job on the 26th. The main foods manager comes out and ceremoniously announces that we can go in and I stick my head down and charge. I don't go quite as far as to trample anyone, but I can't say that I wouldn't have if it had come to it. I'm convinced it's going to be an all out brawl and it's like something out of a Harry Potter Christmas scene or the end of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Let the feast begin. There is so much food left. Everyone there could have taken two turkeys and there would still have been some left. This was Christmas 2006, by the way, the height of the Celtic tiger. I grab a turkey the size of an American toddler and then I'm just kind of at a loss. There really was so much left over. I ended up grabbing sausage stuffing, croquette potatoes, duck fat roasters, candied parsnips and carrots. I start to drift towards the tills and the manager asks me what I'm doing. I think I've taken too much 
this was spending limit I hadn't heard of. Instead, he's asking me why I'm wasting food and throws pork crackling and sticky toffee pudding into my basket. I go to the till, expecting this to be the big reveal where it'll actually end up costing me my entire month's pay. It costs 23 euro. Now, my only problem is that I have about 16 kilos worth of food and I've arranged to meet my dad two kilometers away because Dundrum parking is extortion. There's also no point in ringing him and asking him to come closer because my dad comes home from work every day and puts his phone in the kitchen drawer and that's where it stays until he leaves for work the next morning. Does this defeat the purpose of a mobile? Yes. Yes, it does. Anyway, I schlep this bounty all the way to where we are supposed to meet. And I see that he is literally pacing at 11pm in December outside his car. He sees me and he looks like a husband waiting for his wife's operation results. When we went through the shopping bags in the boot of our Corolla, I swear I got some inkling of what it must be like to win Wimbledon. Do that thing where you climb the stands to hug your parents. He was instantly like, Rich, this is too much. How much did you spend? The whole idea was that this is supposed to cost less. I showed him the receipt. And we ended up driving home, blasting Springsteen the whole way. Yes, Dad had to start prepping and cooking a turkey at 11.30 the night before. But the next day, we ate like kings. Or, at the very least, like people from Dalky. Anyways, the food was great. And the best thing was that Dad made a big deal about me providing it. Anytime someone said they liked something, he'd give me an elbow in the ribs. By the end of the dinner, he'd have sworn I'd have taken the job as some sort of Ocean's Eleven-style long con. Anyway, this Christmas is probably going to be a bit shit in comparison, so it was nice to reminisce about a better one. Also, I got a Creative Zen MP3 player, which I'm still convinced is the pinnacle of music technology. Do you think that's a world first, Katie, turning a tweet thread into a piece of audio goodness? Oh, 
Maybe it was the Europeans bringing you innovation since 2017. Um, we have a lot of people to thank for that delightful story that you just heard. It was read for you by Derek O'Shea, host of Mother for Claw. Don't forget to check out the podcast. It is a super interesting listen for all lovers of languages. And the jingle is kind of pleasantly horrible in a similar way to ours. Can I say that? So rude. Producer Katz Laszlo added a dusting of audio magic to make it sound like Christmas. The lovely music you heard was by Owen O'Kenowan and Alton O'Brien. And obviously, thank you so much to Richie Craven for spreading such joy with the story and letting us read it out on the podcast today. When the story went viral on Twitter, Richie asked people who saw the tweets if they might consider donating to the children's charity Bernardo's. Uh, So that is what we are doing here at the Europeans. And you will find a link in the show notes if you fancy donating too. Well, it's been many weeks since we've mentioned any isolation inspiration. So Two weeks? Yeah, exactly. So have you spent the last fortnight consuming many, many European books and films? Yes, I have, actually. Oh, well I'll only mention a few of them, I promise. But uh, I've been watching The Great, which is a comedy drama from Tony McNamara, who's the writer of The Favourite. You know that smash it Oscar nominated film. Oh, is this the Russian thing? Yeah, it gives us a loose and comic telling of the life of Catherine the Great, the 18th century empress of Russia. The show is subtitled An Occasionally True Story. So there's none of that controversy that surrounds the crown about whether it is historical or not. This is very clearly not very historical. And in fact, Hulu, who commissioned the series, have described it as anti-historical and that creates a lot of space for a lot of fun and televisual madness that sounds fun who's in it the series is held together by some amazing performances from Elle Fanning as Catherine Ah. and Nicholas Holt of remember when he was in About a Boy as the child as her despotic and moronic sex-obsessed husband Emperor Peter whom she spends the series planning on murdering and deposing. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And despite its historical inaccuracy, it did make me want to find out more about Catherine, who went on to be the longest serving female leader of Russia and who is remembered for her attempts, some of which were successful, to modernise Russia along Western European lines. And because I'm a television addict, instead of reading a book about her, following up this very inaccurate series, I decided to start watching another TV show about her. Wow. A miniseries HBO made last year called Catherine the Great, starring Helen Mirren as Catherine. Is this one less fictionalised? Yes. I mean... Just read a book. (laughs) I think so. It doesn't have a disclaimer about being, like, definitely historically inaccurate. And I do believe it more, but I think that's partly just because of, like, the dark atmospheric lighting that makes me think it's more historically accurate but yeah I really should read a book because um, she seems like she was such an interesting character and it was such an interesting time in Russian history well funnily enough I've been falling asleep recently to uh, the audiobook The Romanovs by Simon Seabag I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name sorry Simon if it's not Simon Seabag at Montefiore it's really juicy although it's quite hard to fall asleep to because I keep nodding off and then waking up and the Tsar and Tsarina are like murdering loads of people and 
Yeah, it was quite a crazy time in, in history. You should go back to listening to books about trees at night. I think I should. Both of these television programmes are available here in the Netherlands and in much of Europe on Stars Play, which is a streaming yeah. service I'd never heard of. You can get a free trial, I think. Um, and The Great will be showing on Channel 4 in the UK in the new year and is also available on Hulu in the US. Um, can I add one quick? I know I've been talking for ages. Can I add one quick extra recommendation? Go I told on you then. I've been consuming a lot, and it's a slightly nepotistic recommendation because my father's involved. But um, I promise he's been paid already, and he's not getting any extra money, or I'm not either because of the recommendation. <laughs> Good to know. I watched a, the live stream of a wonderful performance of Handel's Messiah from Cadogan Hall in London. The piece was streamed as part of a really quite impressive online program from the British vocal group Voches 8, who have a whole Christmas concert program that's live streaming from London. So you should go and check that out in general. But particularly this performance of The Messiah, which my father was directing from the harpsichord with a dream lineup of soloists and the English Chamber Orchestra playing absolutely brilliantly. I haven't seen my father in real life for a long time, so it was just really nice to watch him in his element uh, leading this very moving performance of the Messiah. Aww. And I know for many of the performers, it was their first time performing in front of a small audience um, because at the time London was in their tier two lockdown. So still allowed to have some people there. That has now passed. Um, but it gave the performance real excitement and vitality. And yeah, I really recommend that you go and check it out. It's much cheap. You do pay a bit, but it's much cheaper than a normal concert would be. What have you been enjoying? Uh, I watched a couple of European flavoured things this week. For some reason, To Catch a Thief caught my eye on Amazon Prime. That is a 1955 film about a spate of jewel heists in the French Riviera. And it stars Cary Grant as an extremely tanned former jewel thief, uh, opposite Grace Kelly just a year before she became Princess of Monaco, in fact. And it was just really nice to see the beautiful south of France in the 1950s, even if the film is mildly problematic because it was made in 1955. Uh, it was an otherwise quite silly and enjoyable thriller about jewel heists with some entertaining lines in it. This is the quiche Lorraine. I think you'll enjoy this. Mm. Well, the pastry is as light as earth. Ah, well, Germaine has very sensitive hands and exceedingly light touch. She strangled a German general once. The other thing I started watching was the German comedy Über Weihnachten, or Over Christmas, on Netflix. And I really enjoyed it. As you know, Dominic, I'm a big fan of, like, Christmassy Netflix drivel. Mm-hmm. Do you remember last year I got really obsessed with those like low budget romantic comedies that they kept setting in like fictional European countries with like oh, yeah. made up monarchies? I've still not seen any of them. They're so bad. The storylines are like rubbish and the sets look really cheap, but it doesn't really matter because you're just, it, you've got it on as like background TV. You're just watching it while you're wrapping the Christmas presents or whatever. Uber Weihnachten is a Christmassy Netflix comedy. But I would say it's at the classy end of the Netflix Christmas spectrum. And it's genuinely funny and set in an extremely Christmassy small German town. Uh, so if you're looking for something cosy and festive to watch, uh, yeah, I recommend it. Sounds ideal. Well, I feel like with all that Christmas cheer in the... Nice, a Marks and Spencer story. We don't really need a happy ending, do we? Nah. See you then. Bye. Well, I'm going to give you one anyway. Wow. Oh.
Go on then. A team of German researchers have published a paper in the Ecological Economics Journal in which they claim to have discovered a key to the happiness of people living in Europe. Oh. They studied 26,000 adults living in 26 European countries and discovered a correlation between the living satisfaction of Europeans and the level of biological diversity in their immediate surroundings. Wow. That is really interesting. They measured biological diversity in quite an interesting way as well. They did it by measuring how many species of bird were noted in the local environment. And of course, as any scientist will tell you, correlations don't mean that there is definitely a causal link. Mm -hmm. But these scientists are theorizing that biological diversity is as important for our mental well-being as income is. They discovered that when income rises by 10%, life satisfaction rises by a very similar amount to when bird diversity increases by 10%. So you should think very carefully, Katie, if your boss offers you the option between a raise of 10% or the opportunity to move to an area with 14 or so extra birds. Oh, I thought you were going to say, or if my boss says, would you like 15 parrots? We'll move them into your apartment. That would be a good idea. Because the birds might actually make you happier. Although, actually, I think maybe you should take the money. Uh, and that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're going back to your job next year after a sabbatical as a freelancer. Yeah, very exciting. Looking forward to having paychecks and not having to think about money quite so much as I did in 2020. Maybe I'll buy a parrot in my first paycheck. <laughs> or maybe it's just the reason why you're going back is because there weren't enough species of bird outside your flat in Paris. Well, I wish everyone the weirdest of Christmases and, yeah, hope everyone stays safe. And we will be back in the new year. Don't you worry. I think this podcast has been one of the things that has kept the two of us sane uh, this year because it kept us busy and occupied. And we've been really moved to see so many new people discovering it and enjoying it and getting so many nice messages from people saying, this podcast has become a part of my week and I love listening to it. So thank you so much for being part of the Europeans in this most horrible of years. Obviously, we wouldn't still be making the Europeans if people didn't listen to it. It would just be me and Dominic talking to no one. That would just be a Skype call. Which would be nice. But seriously, thank you so much for listening. We hope all of you are staying safe and well and that you get some rest as this godforsaken year comes to a close. Hear, hear. See you next year, everyone. Bye, everyone. Cheers. <laughs>